Galatians chapter 6 this morning. We will start in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says as he's carried along by the Spirit, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Would you pray together with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. Thankful that it's alive and active, and it does not need to be injected with energy and life. It is life. And so God, would you use it to form people this morning, to make them into the image of your Son, And to bring more and more honor and glory to yourself as your church gathers to listen to it. God, we love you. Thanks for this word. Amen. The book of Galatians has been displaying for us so clearly over and over and over again this glory. The glory of the doctrine of justification by faith. And I say the glory of the doctrine of justification by faith because this is a doctrine that when we hear the word doctrine, we're like, that sounds like something boring that you go to school to learn. But when we talk about doctrine of justification by faith, we're talking about the very center, the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that we say that this doctrine is teaching us that you can be made right in God's sight based not on your performance or your works or what you have or have not done, but based on the work of Jesus through your faith in Him, that you can be fully accepted, that you can fully belong to God, even though you are sinful and have rejected God because of what Jesus has done. This is good news for the irreligious who have no good works stored up for them, who, who have been rejecting God and gone on their own way and, have, and have, have switched from serving the Creator to the created things. It says to them, you can belong and be fully accepted. It's not based on what you have or haven't done. You can believe in Jesus and you can have a place where you're fully an heir of all that God has given to His Son Christ. It speaks to the religious, maybe especially to the religious. Most of us come from some sort of church background where we think that we can do enough good things. We can be acceptable before God. That if we just live a certain way, we don't do certain things, we do other things, then surely God will accept us. And this doctrine says, no, actually, that won't work at all. You have to come through faith in Christ or you will not come at all. And and so this doctrine has all this glory for us. And it says, for freedom... And for this freedom, Christ has set us free. But the doctrine of justification by faith has a very practical side. And Paul has been moving from the doctrine itself to the practice of the doctrine at the end of the book of Galatians. And so he's been showing us that the the practical side of this is loving service for one another. It's fruit that's lived out in your life of love and joy and peace and patience. And the fruit that the Spirit is producing in us. It looks like confronting others when they're in their sins. It looks like bearing burdens of those who are around you because you are justified, you then go out and want to bear other burdens. And here in Galatians chapter 6 and 6 through 10, Paul gives us three more. These are three more practical implications of the doctrine of justification. Three more community exhortations that shows us that the doctrine of justification can be undercut by our lack of practice. That is that it's undercut when it's not making a practical difference in God's people. 
and in their life together as community. We can unsay in our practice what we say and write down in our doctrine. So Paul goes after our practice. He says, here's what it looks like practically to trust in justification by faith. Here's what it looks like to walk in freedom, another phrase he used. Here's what it looks like to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Because our doctrine of justification has everything to do with our lives and practical living. What we say here, and the glory we talk about in this doctrine of justification by faith, has everything to do with Niger, has everything to do with Dragontown, has everything to do with us reaching out to our neighbors. And if it doesn't, then we don't understand it rightly. One author said it this way, is that one of, our prime, one of the prime indications of life in the Spirit, according to Paul, is concern for one another, which is manifested in practical ways. And so Paul gives three more practical Community exhortation. Three more ways to walk by the Spirit. Show concern for others. He says, share all good things with one who teaches you. The second one is, don't be deceived. What one sows, one is going to reap. And to keep doing good. And so he begins by addressing this community relationship that exists between teachers and those who are taught. And he says, here's an instance to show concern. He says in verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Those who are justified by faith in Christ are those who don't graduate from the school of grace, but who maintain this posture of a learner throughout their time on the earth. We do not move on from one doctrine to the next, growing and always getting ready to move beyond the doctrine of justification. We are always those who are to be learners. That is the posture of the Christian. And the subject that we are to be learning, that we are to give ourselves to as believers, is the Word. You are taught the Word. And this Word that He speaks of is the entire gospel. It is is Genesis to Revelation, where God is revealing to us primarily who He is and what He has done. And we see this triumph and this climax in it when we see Jesus come on the scene. This is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Everything the, the, the Word has been pointing to all along comes to fulfillment in Christ. And we are meant to know this. And we are to be learners of this because there's always more to know. We haven't plumbed all the way to the depths of of knowing this Word, of knowing God and, and all that He has done there. And so there's always more to learn, more to grow in. And the Word is never an end in itself. The Word of God is always an invitation to us. Come know me. Come see what I have done. But don't stop there. Worship me. Live in light of these things that I have said and done on this earth. It's to be received. It's to be learned. It's to be acted upon. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was preaching a sermon to uh, his congregation in London, he says this, he says out there, speaking of London, they are all running after the latest sensations, the excitement of evening in the big city, never knowing that the real sensation, something, something infinitely more exciting is happening in here. Here, where eternity and time meet, where the immortal God receives mortal human beings. And he asks this question, why is this the case? It is because we ourselves have made the church and keep on making it something which it is not. It is because we talk too much about false, trivial human things and ideas in the church and too little about God. It's because we make the church into a playground for all sorts of feelings of ours instead of a place where God's Word is obediently received and believed. That's what the church is to be. A place where the Word is taught. Where, where we are receiving the Word. That this is essential to us. The Word has to be received here. 
And so we need to be reminded individually, this is true, we need to be learners individually, but corporately we need to be reminded the word learners here. This is an identity for us as believers that we are to sit under and be taught the Word of God. And so when we gather in here, we call this corporate worship, and when we, when we gather for corporate worship, this isn't a, a passive time for you to just be part of an audience. And this is a time to be an active participant. And it's from start to end. We don't just stand and sing together and then you have a part because you know what the words are to sing. And then now you can sit down and relax and just enjoy the show or be a participant. Just kind of sit and and see what's going on. No, this is the time not to check out and to be passive, but to actively engage in being taught, in learning the Word of God. And so a Puritan pastor said this, Come... Not to hear with a careless heart as if, it were to, as if it were to hear a matter that little concerned you. But come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy words which you are to hear. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be as busy as he. You must open your mouth and digest it for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. Be hearers of the Word. Be taught. It's implied in this verse. He says you are the ones who are to be taught the Word. But it also implies teaching from a teacher. Now the book of James tells us not many of you should become teachers, but some of you should. And Paul doesn't identify any sort of title here. He just says teacher. He doesn't say this is a pastor or anything like that. It's likely because the problem in Galatia is false teachers. Or at least part of the problem. But he gets at their primary function, that they are to teach. Now God has clearly mandated in the scripture for the church to be taught by gifted teachers. It's a pastoral qualification in 1 Timothy 3. He says they need to be able to teach. It's clearly what Paul has described of the church. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 that, that God has given apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. What are they to do? To be equipping the church for the work of ministry. What are all those offices? What do they all have in common? They're offices of the Word of God. They're always to be offices of the Word of God. He says to the pastor, Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, That the Lord's servant is to be able to teach. Again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And indeed, this was Paul's pattern as well. He goes and he plants churches, and what does he do? Everywhere he goes, he's speaking and teaching the Word of God. Everywhere he goes, starts in synagogues, some places, and then he moves out to the Gentiles from there. He's speaking and teaching every single place he goes, the Word of God. And so when he gathers the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says this, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house. Clearly, if you look through the book of Acts over and over and over again, the Word is central to all that the church is doing. The Word of God is to be taught that it is the central piece of the puzzle for the church after the resurrection is that we are to gather and the Word of God is to be central. And it is to be taught from those who can teach it. Bonhoeffer again. This was his first sermon to that church in London. He says, for the congregation is to pay attention to the preaching rather than the preacher. And to have only one question, is this truly the gospel of our God that we are hearing? Or is it the kind of arbitrary thinking that human beings invent, which blossoms today and withers away tomorrow like grass of the field? 
There is really only one question for the congregation to ask of its pastor. Are you offering to us the eternal Word of God, the Word of life, wherever you can, in the pulpit and in daily life, or are you giving us stones instead of bread? Ask that question. Is the Word being taught? Is that central to the life of the church? Because I think that it's clear that all through the New Testament that it ought to be. And that those who teach the church are to primarily give themselves to the same subjects for which you are to be taught. And that is the Word. So you can see how these work together so well. We are to come and learn and be taught the Word of God. But we are to have teachers who are teaching that Word. And so the hunger that you have for the Word to be taught should be filled by someone who is coming and is giving it out and teaching it. And then you can digest it. This is a big function of the church to be primarily about the Word of God. Because the Word reveals who God is. It reveals what He's like. It reveals what He wants in this world. And it is clearly intended to be taught that people might know Him and be equipped as ambassadors to live as those who have their souls fed and are ready to reach out to others. Now hopefully just by, by speaking about the nature and the weight of all that that is to be taught and to teach, that makes Paul's exhortation in verse 6 an easy one. So he says... Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And so Paul, I think, is, is speaking financially here. Share is a common, u- common word used elsewhere to describe generous financial giving. So in Romans chapter 12, he says contribute, that's the same word, share, to the needs of the saints. And he's specifically thinking about financially contribute to the needs of the saints. In Philippians chapter 4, he says no church entered into partnership, same word there, sharing, With me in giving and receiving to provide for the needs of the churches. So so clearly this has some some financial overtones. Good things as well adds on to that. It is used to refer to earthly possessions. Solidifying, once again, this, this financial connection between those who are taught and those who are teaching. We see this good things in Luke chapter 16. You see, Jesus talks about this rich man Lazarus and this poor man, or the poor man Lazarus and this rich man. And he says, in your lifetime, as Lazarus has passed on and he gives this vision of heaven, he says, in your lifetime you received good things. In other words, you had financial being, you had the the world's goods. These are good things in the world. And Lazarus, in like manner, he had bad things. He didn't have any. That was the, the discrepancy between them. One had financial means, had goods, the other one did not. So verse 6, I think, is another way of saying... What Paul has said elsewhere. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Don't muzzle the oxes that treads on the grain. The labor deserves his wages. Which is clearly not written for the good of the ox alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Pastor John preached on this. It's on our website if you're interested. But it says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I think there is a difference in Galatians 6.6. 6, in that Galatians 6.6 6 places the emphasis on those who are taught. To make provision for the teacher. A little bit more directly. And it seems as if this is the natural overflow of the one who is coming to learn, to be taught. That if their soul is being fed, then they out of the overflow of that soul fullness that they have, they should want to help provide for those who are teaching them. That's because it is valued. That the word is valued. That being taught the word is valued. And so one theologian says, For if the word be truly esteemed, its ministers will always receive kind and honorable treatments. 
I think the key word there is if. If it is valued. And if it is valued, then financial provision is, is a simple way to just display it. It ought to be an easy step for us. And so you're, you're probably thinking right now, like, I'm teaching the Word. You're learning. And so is this a little bit of an awkward setup? <laughs> no. <laughs> and here's why. Because we love this Word here. And we are not ashamed of any part of it. If this is the clear teaching of the Scripture, it doesn't matter what it says. It's not awkward for me to say, here's what God's Word says. Like, that's what you should want me to do. And so you, you pay me to do this. <laughs> right? This is what God's Word says. It's not awkward for me at all to say, here's what God has said in His Word. Thus saith the Lord. Let's do these things. But it's also not awkward. In fact, when I go through this, like, it's encouraging to me because sojourners so value the Word of God that I personally know they make provision for my family and I. I know the value of the Word of God here. It encourages me that I get to do this. And since I've been at Sojourn, I've been able to directly testify to the generosity that's overflowing out of hearts that are fed by the Word. What a privilege. May it always be said of us that we easily part with earthly things for eternal benefit. May it always be said of us that the Word of God is so valued among us that we would give any of our money, all of our stuff, just support its ministry here and around the world. May we honor those who teach it, freeing them up to study, providing for them. And doing this is a practical way, Paul is saying, a practical way of showing concern for one another. Of bearing burdens with one another. Of living life in the Spirit with one another. It's a practical concern that you can show for others. And so this is the first exhortation that he gives. Share all good things with the one who teaches. But he goes on, and the two other exhortations follow this financial theme that he started in verse 6. And so the principles in these remaining verses are, are true of life as a whole, but I think they're a little bit more narrow in the scope here. And they apply to lots of things, but the focus is financial. So verse 7, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. No one can pull a fast one on God. You can't get one by on Him that He doesn't see or know about or hear. So know that what you sow, you're also going to reap. And so there's a life principle in that. Like what you do is what you put into something is what you're going to get out of it. There, that's, that's true. But we, we, we come to this verse as people who, who say that, that faith is something. It means something. And, and in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that in faith, of this faith, that there's this faith that God exists. And He rewards those who seek Him and He judges those who reject Him. So, so faith is, is reminding us, when we trust in God, that there is a reaping in the end. Like there is a reaping of good, there is a reaping of judgment. There is salvation and there is rejection. So those who have faith in God, knowing that He rewards those who seek Him and have their faith in Him, can sow generously knowing that, that there is a reward coming for them. Knowing, as, as Hebrews chapter 11 says, uh, we're not worried about this city and this country here. We're looking forward to a better city and a better country whose, whose architect and founder is God. That's what we're looking forward to. And so Paul continues. He says, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Again, there's, there's a broader application. We just went through, here are the works of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. If you sow in those things, you're clearly going to reap corruption. But I think the focus, if we're going to narrow in a little bit more, is is how we use worldly goods. It's financial. So sowing to the flesh is to use all that we have, our financial means, our goods, for our own advantage, for selfish desires, for self-promotion. 
Luther says it this way, when people scrape up everything they can lay their hands on and keep everything for themselves, the Apostle calls it sowing to the flesh. And the Bible is full of examples of this. Joshua chapter 7, you have Achan who who sees this wonderful coat in Shinar and hides it along with gold and silver and buries it in his tent when he was told, don't take anything. But he had this love in his heart for these things and he wanted them to use him and say, hey, I'm going to keep these and we're going to use them for the community good. Still would have been off because he would have been disobeying God. But what does he do? He buries them in his tents. He wants those things. He's scraping it together for his own good. And of course, judgment was upon him and his family. There's the story that I referenced a little bit ago. The rich man and Lazarus. They, they had gathered up good things and Lazarus was poor. He had sown and, and rejected Lazarus. He had sown to the flesh. Everything was being scraped together for his own good, not for the good of others. You see Ananias. And this is maybe a, a strange example because... He actually does this in his giving. Ananias and Sapphira own this piece of property in Acts chapter 5. They sell it as other disciples had done. They sell it, giving it to the apostles, laying at their feet. But they lied to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles, is what the scripture says, by withholding some of it for themselves and not being honest about it. And Peter says, you could, you, the whole thing was yours in the beginning, but now you're trying to play this game where you're looking a lot better than you actually are. So even in your giving, you have been selfish and you have sown to the flesh. And he reaped corruption as he falls down dead. We see this in Luke chapter 12, a parable that I think perfectly displays this sowing to the flesh, especially financially. Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells them this parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does he think when he gets all these financial means? What does he do with the world's goods? He thinks about himself. Sowing in this manner reaps corruption. For Ananias and Sapphira it was immediate, but most often it's not immediate. Or even earthly. You see this in the Psalms. So have you ever thought this? Like this, this person is, is being deceitful in their business practices, and yet they're making tons of money. The psalmists say stuff like that. Like, look at them walking in evil, and yet they're fat. They've got plenty of food, and I'm hiding out, and I can't even get a break. It's not immediate. It's not necessarily on earth. There's a future tense that Paul uses here. They will reap. And what he's talking about is the last judgment. The age to come. Where there is a reaping of destruction and corruption coming. This is further solidified when he says that those who reap to the Spirit are, are going to reap eternal life. And so you contrast that. Like they're coming eternal destruction for those who sow to the flesh. And eternal life for those who sow to the Spirit. Clearly this is speaking of a final judgment. Of an age to come. That's when this is going to happen. And they won't experience life in that life. They will experience death, destruction, and corruption. And Paul is saying, this is where living selfishly for your own desires, for your own advancements, this is where it leads. It leads to eternal corruption and death. But there's another way to live life. There's another way to sow, he says. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Once again, there's, there's broader application, right? There's all these fruits of the Spirit. So be loving and, and joyful and, and all these things. There, there's that, but there's also at least a financial sowing that he's speaking of here. 
So he says, you ought to be sowing to the Spirit. That is sowing of generous living and generous giving to others. And what will they reap? Eternal life. Again, future. This is what you will reap. This is an age to come where you will get this. And you're not going to have corruption there. There's going to be life there. This follows in suit with what Jesus says when He says, lay up your treasures not on earth. They could be corrupted there. Lay up your treasures in heaven. And don't build bigger barns necessarily. Think about other people laying up your treasures where it cannot be destroyed. Now it's probably not a surprise to any of you that I love cookies. If you know me well, you know this well. And my wife makes amazing cookies. Lots of different kinds of them. And I love them very much. And actually, you can share all good cookies with me too. Part of my payment. Got no problem with that either. I love when she starts making cookies because I think I'm going to experience all the goodness and the joy here. And then I get thwarted sometimes and shut down completely when I find out, oh, these are to be taken somewhere else. I can't think of anywhere where we would want to take a cookie. That does not mean to leave the kitchen. I don't think we have any friends. And they certainly wouldn't like this cookie. Like, I'm sure of it. Like, they don't need it. It's got chemicals in it that they can't have. But sometimes, sometimes when she makes cookies and she's going to make them for other people, sometimes she makes extras for us at home. Like a bonus batch. And when I know that I'm secured that there's a bonus batch, there's some reserved for me at home, then all of a sudden I'm the most generous person in the world. Yes, like, I love your cookies. Everyone else is going to love them too. Let's spread the joy as far as it will go. Send them out all over the place so that they can enjoy them too. And they know what I get all the time. How amazing is that? What frees me to be generous? The security of knowing that I have something reserved for me, awaiting me that can't be touched. Paul says... That you can sow to the Spirit because you know that one day you're going to reap. It is reserved for you eternal life. There's something secure and waiting for you. And that changes everything about how you sow. And so Paul says, sow to the Spirit because eternal life, it's secure for you. It's awaiting you. You can pour your life into this. You can pour your money into this. You're not going to waste it because a time is coming when you're going to get exactly what you always long for in the most, in the deepest parts of your hearts, life. Now notice how justification never leads to passivity. It has something to say about how we spend our money and our goods. It doesn't lead to laxity in our practice or to just doing whatever we want. It never leads there. In fact, just the opposite is true. What the doctrine of justification does for us practically is it puts hands to the plow. And those plows start moving and working according to the glory of God. Believers, our our standing before God, because we trust in what Paul has said in the book of Galatians and elsewhere, our standing before God is not based on our works. It's not based on how we spend our money but because that's true, we do work and we do spend our money in ways that honor and glorify God because we know I'm free in Christ for freedom. Christ has set me free. He's set me free to do these kinds of things. How could I not? The freedom that we're meant to live in is never characterized by just being passive and, and just doing whatever we want with our lives and whatever we want with our money. It's always meant to be poured out for the good of God and the good of other people. 
So don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What one sows, he will also reap. And so, so wisely. And then he gives us one final community exhortation in this passage. And he aims to encourage perseverance. Verse 9, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Doing good. I think doing good is another way of saying what he said before, of sowing to the Spirit, of living life in the Spirit, of keeping in step with the Spirit, of showing concern for others, it's serving others in love, it's meeting their needs, it's bearing their burdens, it's being generous to them. But here's the assumption. For those who are justified, the assumption is that they are doing good. Says, don't grow weary in it. For you to grow weary in it, you have to actually be doing it. Is this a right assumption? It certainly should be from the Scripture. If you are justified, you've been set free from the law. You've been set free from your flesh, which would hold you into slavery. You've been given the Spirit, the Spirit of adoption that starts producing fruit in you. All kinds of fruit. And if He doesn't produce fruit, then He isn't there. That's, I think, what Paul would say. There's this concern for others. There's this service of others. There's this desire to bear others' burdens. There's confronting others. There's, all of these things are happening in us because we're justified by our faith. There is this right assumption that if you are justified, you should be doing good. That's part of it. And it's not an odd thing. It's not a weird connection. It makes like the most natural connection in the world. To Paul, you're justified. You ought to be doing good. And because you're doing good, there is the temptation and the chance to grow weary in it. But at least one way he's talking about here of doing good is by financial concern. And so 1 John 3 says this, If anyone has the world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So those justify, they they start looking to others and saying, Oh, there's a need there, I want to meet that. I want to go after that. Those justified do good. They use their financial means they can to do good to others. And so we have all this. One, One has to be doing good for us to grow weary in it. But why would anybody grow weary in it? Why would that happen? Jesus says, we get this from the book of Acts, it's a quote from Him, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So we see blessing, and we even probably experience blessing when we look to others, when we give others financially, when we, when we show and care and service to others, it brings us some joy. Santa Claus always seems to be giving, and he's jolly all year round, so like, I don't understand why anyone would grow weary in doing good. We all know. It's easy to grow weary in doing good. That, that, that we know. Like, that's a slam dunk case for Paul. He doesn't have to make the case that you could grow weary in doing good. No, he's like, don't grow weary in doing good, because it's so easy to do. He knows the temptation because he's rooted in reality. That people are ungrateful, that they'll take advantage of you, that they'll be wasteful, that they might initially receive and then they'll totally reject you and leave and you'll never see them again. Paul had people do this too. All the time Paul had people do this. He'd pour his life into them, his teaching, his financial well-being into them, and they'd leave him and abandon him in his darkest hours. He also knew that at times the needs would seem overwhelming. And so you'd look at the needs like, there's no way we can meet this. There's no way we can do this. You can grow weary in that. Look around the world and you can, man, you could grow weary really, really fast and thinking, how am I supposed to impact this and do good to this situation? How could I even make any sort of progress here? Because progress seems really, really slow in all these areas. And Paul knew results would be hard to see, that they'd be hard to come by, and that patience would grow thin with servants of the living God. 
And so how does He encourage? What, what does He point people to? What is He trying to help us with in growing weary and doing good? Well, He says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In due season. Paul has been using agricultural words, an agricultural, in a sense, metaphor, where they would have known, and we should know, that sowing is hard work. Tiring work. Monotonous work. It lacks guarantees. Seasons span time. They're not quick. Lots of time. Crops are fragile. The dangers are plentiful. I mean, how many do we have? Weather, insects, malfunction of equipment. I mean, there's a million different dangers all around this. But these agricultural words and this metaphor that he's using reminds us of the good as well. That there is a crop, that there's a principle here. Like you put seed in the ground and there's something that comes from it because that's how God has created things. That the process actually works. That there's a harvest to come. Now, it doesn't negate the difficulty. It doesn't negate the fragility or the danger or the slow process or the unseen growth. All of that is part of it. But part of the encouragement here is for all of us as the people of God to grow a little bit more comfortable with this agricultural metaphor. With these agricultural words where it's hard and the things take a long time and there's a lot of patience needed. And so we live in, in a technology age where I have free two-day delivery on almost anything I order. And I like that. And so when I think of due season, I'm thinking more like two days, not two months. Like three days, I'm getting like, what's the deal? Where's my stuff? You can't be in that age and then relate to what he's talking about with seasons. A long time. We need to change our expectations because the Bible has, if you look at it, lots of agricultural metaphors for ministry. Where there's lots of seasons and times and growth is slow and hard to see and it's painful and it's tough work and God is completely comfortable with all these things. Comfortable with slow work. Comfortable with being patient and waiting. Comfortable with planting and sowing and watering and not seeing anything. And I think we need to be too. But Paul's encouragement goes more than that. More than just get comfortable with the time and the, the hardness. Just bear down and get comfortable with it. I think he goes further. It's more than just a be patient encouragement because he includes a promise. The end of verse 9, he says, In due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So instead of giving up, use every opportunity that you have to do good. To everybody, and even there's some concentric circles of doing good. So if you're, you're struggling, like, who do I go, do good to first? Like, he said, well, especially those of the household of faith. And so there's some, some concentric circles that you can move out from, especially the household of faith. And then you do good to everyone. Everyone's a broader circle. That's a little bit harder to put our finger on, but the household of faith isn't. That's the local church. This is the only place where the household of faith is actually displayed and seen and has flesh. It's when we look at one another. There it is. That's the concept. He says, especially those people. And he says this in lots of other ways, in lots of other places. But clearly the local church is especially in view here when he says this. Especially those where we've banded together. There should be no need among us. Not while any of us has any means left. Paul says, I think the New Testament says, that should not happen. 
If you have brothers that have real needs in your midst and you have the means to meet them and you don't meet them, he says, that's not love. I'm beginning to wonder if you've been justified at all. I'm beginning to wonder if you love God at all. If the natural overflow isn't with the brothers and sisters in your household of faith have real needs that you haven't met. So clearly there's some concentric circles here. But the same problems of weariness can be in the local church. Taken advantage of? Yep, can happen. Probably will happen. Ungrateful? Yep, can happen. Probably will happen. I mean, you could list all of the things we think about growing weary in every other area. It can happen in the local church. But Paul encourages not to giving up with the promise of reaping. In due season, we will reap. That's what he says. It will take place and it will be in the future. I mean, believers, we're one week removed from Easter, but, but we dare not forget the reality of that. And so in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, these introductions that we skip through have so many meaningful words. We read through them so quickly, but here's what it says. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Who is the lead of the church? The head of the church? It is Jesus. And who is Jesus? One who has been raised from the dead. And so when we are promised something, we know that we are getting that promise from one who is alive. So in other words, if He is alive... And He has ascended into heaven. He is reigning over all things. Then the the promises in the scripture that says this will happen, we can actually trust that they're going to happen because the one that we serve is alive and reigning and ruling over all. There's one who is sitting. His work is finished. He is reigning over all things. He's ruling over all the earth. And the one who is alive, He promises there will be a reaping and He is the only one who can see to it. And thank goodness He's alive. And so our problem, I think, primarily with growing weirdly, isn't primarily about ungrateful people. It's not about hard cases. It's not even about the seasons taking a long time. Those can contribute. Our problem with growing weary and doing good, it's about our faith in Christ, or lack thereof. Our faith in the risen One who promises reaping in due season. Because this present evil age is not the only age there is. There is an age to come where all who have placed their faith in Jesus will be co-heirs along with Him. Who will reap eternal life. A plentiful harvest to the glory of that risen King. That is coming. Don't grow weary in doing good because Jesus is alive. He's with you. He's interceding for you. Don't grow weary in doing good. In 1912, there was a medical missionary. His name was Dr. William Leslie. He went to live and minister to a tribal people in a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo near a town called Venga on the Kwailu River. And after 17 years of medical missions work, he returned to the U.S. a discouraged man, believing that he'd failed to make an impact for Jesus. So he'd come back to the U.S. after 17 years there, thinking nothing has done, been done there, there's no ongoing work there, it's all been lost. Nine years after his return, he, he dies. But in 2010, there was this team, led by Eric Ramsey, they flew to Venga, they took a two and a half hour flight in a Cessna caravan, And after they reached Venga, they hiked a mile to the Kwailu River. They used dugout canoes to cross this half-mile-wide expanse. 
They hiked with backpacks another 10 miles into the jungle. So you can just tell how remote the place where this guy was. Before they reached the first village of the Yangtze people. Now based on their previous research, they thought that these people in this remote, very remote area, might have had some exposure to the name of Jesus, but no real understanding of who He is, no real real progress. But what they discovered shocked them. And here's what He said. When we got in there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. This network of churches was hidden in this dense jungle Right across the river from where this doctor had planted his life for 17 years. Years of struggle without seeing growth. Years of, without seeing results that he probably desired. Waiting on the harvest to come. And he goes back thinking it never came. But he sowed and he watered. He was doing good as he had opportunity to all those who were in front of him. And years later God gave the growth. I love that this wasn't just, there was a church in this dense jungle. There was a network of reproducing churches throughout this jungle that is not easy to get to because God had so done a work in and through His servants that they were reproducing on their own. Their sowing was probably hard. Their suffering was probably great. Their season was long. But do they regret it? I can't speak for him. His faith is sight. But as his faith became sight and death, my guess is he didn't regret a thing. We may not see progress. It may be hard work, but don't give up is the encouragement. Jesus is at the helm of the cosmos. He's reigning and ruling over all. He has promised you're going to reap in the age to come. So as we hold closely to the doctrine of justification by faith, that should lead us to doing good as we have an opportunity to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And while at times we are going to grow weary in doing good, our hope is not ultimately placed in our not growing weary, but in the one who never sleeps and never slumbers and reigns over all. Let's do good to honor that King. Would you pray with me? God, we thank You that You are alive and active, that You hear our prayers and that You love us and that You love Your creation. And God, we're thankful that You have decided in Your infinite wisdom to invite us not only to know You, but to make You known. And so we want to thank You for both sides of that, that You have given us things like the doctrine of justification by faith, That we haven't deserved a place before you. We don't deserve to be praying to you or to be called your sons. But indeed you say, if you trust in Jesus, then you fully belong. You're sons. But because that's true, God, may that make us the most active people on the planet. Actively seeking to love other people. To make your glory and your name known wherever It can be. God, for that to happen, you're going to need to continue to energize us. Fuel us forward that we may not grow weary. We are so weak. So weak in good things. So weak in that we give in to sinful things. So God, is it not so obvious that we are still in continued need of you? God, be honored as you continue to provide for us. 
as we look to you to make you known, but also knowing that we make you known, knowing that you're giving everything that you have asked. God, thank you for this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.